0: Hi, this is Michael Shapiro, and this is the Delacorte Review Podcast, where we talk about real, true stories and how they happen. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Sonia Sharp, whose story, And Now You Can Leave, is set in Israel. For those who have been to Israel, and in particular to Tel Aviv, this story is about a group of people everyone sees but manages to ignore, unless they're waiting for a drink at a bar, or for their table to be bussed, or for their trash to be picked up. They are almost all from Eritrea, and over the years, some 36,000 of them have made the often dangerous journey to Israel to seek asylum and find a new home. They did, sort of, meaning they found a place to live and work, and some of them married and had children, but all the while it remained unclear whether they could stay. The answer came a few months ago, and it was no. Sonia went to Israel to find them and tell their story, and today... She and I are going to talk about how you make sense of a story when it shakes your beliefs to the core. You begin this journey to Israel. Why?
1: You know, it's funny. It was literally less than two weeks from the time that the idea of this trip popped into our heads to the time that I was reporting this story. My husband travels a ton for work. He had a conference in Tel Aviv. We hadn't been for many years. It happened that my mother-in-law was there at the time, and we just said, let's go. You know, our son had never been, and the moment that my husband said, let's go, I felt this overwhelming compulsion. I have to do this story. I had known about this crisis for a long time.
0: What was the crisis?
1: So there are, right now, about 36,000 Eritrean and Sudanese, but mostly Eritrean refugees living in Israel. And... Israel has, by bits and pieces, been trying to get them to leave. And then this spring it announced plans to forcibly deport them, which was just so out of the norm and and so far beyond what they'd done before that it just felt really extreme to a lot of people.
0: Why? Why? Why can't they just stay?
1: Well, that's a great question. You know, 36,000 people sounds like a real, real lot when you think of it as just a number, but it's it's like a, a baseball stadium, not even a really big baseball stadium, like a like a midweek type of game, as we discussed, right? It's just not that many people. Israel has a lot of other undocumented people. They've got about 20,000 undocumented immigrants from Georgia and Ukraine who've come just in the last two years, mostly who haven't been deported yet. So it it does kind of seem... A question, why can't these people just stay? there? They're asylum seekers. They have a very credible claim. And then the politics of that get really complicated, right? So there's the claim that the government makes. Well, we have to make sure that Israel remains a state for Jews who are oppressed around the world. They claim that they don't see these asylum claims as credible, even though they haven't adjudicated them in any way. I mean, and a lot of critics claim that it's purely racism, right? Because these people are black. And even though there are black Israelis, most Israelis are not black. And a large minority of Israelis are white. And certainly in government, we see it's mostly run by white people. And so there is quite a credible criticism, I think, that this is racism.
0: Who are these people? Are they families? Are they individuals? So the
1: majority of them are single men. There are a significant number of women. And now there are a lot of families. Mostly people didn't cross as families. These are people who came usually by foot from Eritrea, usually through Ethiopia and Sudan, and then by car, frequently from Sudan to Egypt, and then cross through the Sinai in, in very extreme conditions into Israel over a fence that's now impenetrable. So most of these people have been here for several years. Most were single men. Some were single women. Very few were families, but many now have formed families in Israel. So how long have they been there? I mean, the folks that I spoke with had been in Israel for about a decade,
0: so they speak Hebrew they
1: speak Hebrew, they speak fluent Hebrew. It's embarrassing to me as an American Jew who does not speak anything close to fluent Hebrew that they speak obviously much better Hebrew than me. They speak better Hebrew than my husband, who was is born to Israeli parents, has Israeli citizenship, and grew up speaking it in the States. They're very committed, the ones that I met at least, to Israeli culture. They admire Israeli politics, which is insane in this, I feel like, in this world. They they want to be Israelis. And they are. I mean, you can't go to a restaurant. You can't walk down the street. You can't throw away a piece of trash without encountering Eritrean refugees.
0: So you've known about this for a long time before you took the trip. You show up in Israel and you have this idea in your head. What was it? Did you have a a question in your head beginning the reporting on the story?
1: Very much, right? I think to me initially the question was about what is it like psychologically to have gone through everything that these people have gone through, right? And and we're talking about not merely to have to leave your own country but the very arduous, very sometimes torturous journey to reach Israel that includes often a path through um, smugglers in the Sinai that, that are— quite infamous for really gruesome torture, right? And to have fled with your very life and to see people die around you, to reach this country where then you're homeless, you're poor, you don't speak the language, you're oppressed, and to go through all of that and then to have on top of it this, what seemed to me at the time, psychological torture of knowing at any moment you can be expelled back into the danger that you fled.
0: There's also a personal thing in this story for you. What was that?
1: I guess it just, it just seems so morally wrong, so morally wrong even in the context of all the ethical questions that come up any time we talk about Israel, right? There is no—you there's no, can't speak the word Israel without bringing down a whole ethical conundrum, right? But to me and I think to a lot of other Jews, there is something morally wrong and specifically Jewishly wrong about expelling refugees, people who have fled in fear for their lives, right? Because Israel is a country that, very loudly, all the time into the present day, declares itself as the home of refugees as having been built by refugees, right? And not only refugees from the Holocaust in Europe, but also refugees from all across the Middle East who were forced out of their homes when the State of Israel was declared, right? So, that is very core to both Israeli identity and certainly Jewish identity is this sense that we ourselves are multiply and throughout our history refugees. On top of that, the Torah says, and you know, I write about this in the piece, the Torah says not once, not twice, but many, many, many times over and over and over again, you shall not oppress a stranger, right? It says you shall not send a slave back to his master it says in very clear terms, you will treat the stranger as yourself. And I spoke to very religious Jews, people who would never bat an eye at the occupation, who told me if we do this, we cease to have any legitimacy as a state. (laughs) And yet they are doing it.
0: For you as a a person from whose Judaism is very core to your life. How hard was it reporting a story in which you came back to the same question? We had talked about this when you were reporting it, which is, how could you? Saying, essentially saying to the Israeli government, how could you, How, given your history, given the past, given the not-so-recent past, how could you?
1: It's honestly wrenching, and I think because it's been some months now since I was there and I've been sitting with this and writing with this question for a while, it's more wrenching now and it continues to sort of almost feel like a wound in new ways. Tel Aviv is a sort of place where before this trip, before doing this reporting, it was always a like... Fifth alternate fantasy life is that one day we'll have money and we'll just go for a few years and we'll live in Tel Aviv because it, it feels like a place. So many people are from everywhere there. It feels like a place you could just have a nice life by the beach for a couple of years. And confronting this story and confronting this crisis totally erased that for me. It's, I, don't, I don't think I'll ever go back to that fantasy that I had or that idea of myself or my family and our relationship to the state. I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it, it really, to the core of me, very much reshaped the way that I see myself in relationship to the Jewish state.
0: So the story begins in a scene at an AM-PM market, and you and your husband have been out, and you need to pick up milk, and you're a little bit drunk, and you run into this guy. <laughs> <laughs> So how long after you get to Tel Aviv do you, does this scene take place?
1: A couple of days. And I'm sure you've been in this position where you're reporting something and you have the pieces and you've gotten in contact with the people, but you haven't had that first, you haven't met your character yet, and you really are so anxious. <laughs> and it was interesting, I think, being there. I was so attuned from the moment we landed to who might be Eritrean and it was such a learning curve for me to even be able to distinguish as i think i mentioned to you when we were corresponding about it to distinguish initially between who was Ethiopian because there's a lot of Ethiopian Jews even in Tel Aviv there's a lot and who came much who earlier. came much earlier and are Jews and, and we're actually and we're accepted brought right, right? I and mean, there's into the racism country. and there's problems but we we're, we're accepted don't face anything like what's going on right now so to me I was sitting there trying to distinguish cuz well everybody speaks Hebrew and you know everybody kind of dresses the same and and mostly has the same haircuts and like okay how do you tell who's who? And this was a case where I just looked over my shoulder the man has a, a giant silver crucifix like the size of my hand huge right there and he kind of wears it very he has a big chain like my husband wears a big gold chain so he's a big chain and then he's kind of got it stuck right on his neck almost like above his t-shirt wearing it out and I just said this guy he just looked like a guy who would talk and 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 he looked so normal and I think that's what I was you know trying to convey in this piece and trying to convey especially in the opening of this piece is that first of all Israel, especially Tel Aviv, is so normal from an American context. Like, you know you're in a foreign country, but you kind of forget. And also that these folks are so much a part of the faith. Most of them have been there for so long and are so dedicated to assimilating. They are normal.
0: Tell me about the moment, though, just journalistically, when you begin to talk and you go, this is my
1: guy. Well, I mean, you know, like, as I said, you know this moment. Because it's such a, especially when you have a short time and you're working with it's, it, it is difficult to speak to people. I mean, I work also on immigration stories in the States, and it is difficult to speak to people whose status is insecure. It's difficult to speak with people with whom you might not share a common language. There's all these challenges. And I was thinking, if if this organization falls through, if I can't get this other person, there's a holiday going on. What am I going to do if I don't get it? And the moment that he smiled and replied to me in English, oh, my God. And, you know, and so he asked me, what do you do? And I said, well, in fact, I'm a reporter and I'm doing a story about Eritreans in Tel Aviv. Could I get your number? And he says, for sure. And I said, could we meet up for coffee? And he says, absolutely. And, you know, you just feel like I feel like I danced home. (laughs) Like... I feel like my husband was going to murder me because I just was giddy. I couldn't sleep. I was so excited.
0: Just the moments before that, the days before that, how anxious were you? But I'm never going to meet anybody (laughs) ever to talk to me. No one will ever love me again.
1: Well, I mean, insofar as I have done this many times and I know myself a little bit, I'm old enough that I kind of just know my own personality horribly.
0: So you you meet this guy and you begin to talk. And is he a tough interview or is he happy to tell you everything?
1: I was very surprised. He was really forthcoming. He was much more forthcoming than I expected. And frankly, than some of the other people that I spoke with. I think in that, you know, in that sense it was. And because we had time, we were able to meet for coffee. We spent almost three hours together.
0: So you have this great interview with this guy, and he's telling you, he's the character we all dream of, a central character in a story. So then the story is easy after that, right?
1: <laughs> well, no, because, you know, you don't, I mean, obviously, for one thing, you don't want to rely too much on one person, right? But But for another, his experience is... Representative in a sense that he's a single man and most of the people who have come are single men, but a very compelling piece to me, especially as a mother, are the families, right? So another man that I speak to and and another community that I involved was uh, a father of two. I met his daughters uh, and his wife, and we uh, spoke at the school, the special school that's been developed for these asylum seekers because so many of their children were dying in illegal daycares. Um, and so that was a very important part of the story. I also wanted, you know, in a case like this, you want authorities, right? So you want people who f- who's put themselves up as representatives of the community. Um, and then, obviously, I also needed to talk to Israelis.
0: So when you're an Israel reporting this story, there's no shortage of scenes, there's no shortage of characters, there's no shortage of people who want to tell you things. So do you come back with stacks of notes?
1: I came back with, a uh, huge volume of pictures. I came back with a t- like notebooks, multiple. I came back with many hours of tape that I it, transcribed. And you come back, and I think the power of this story for me is that it, it, it is so intense, it, there is so much, but that was also the struggle with this story is trying to relay it to someone who maybe doesn't have the same context that I had going in without drowning them.
0: So how did you do that?
1: <laughs> Not well at first.
0: No, well let's because at first you be I think we kind of agreed you began on the wrong place. I
1: did. I did. And I remember your note was really that I feel your anger. And I think it's over like it I think it might overwhelm right is that you know it's so righteous but it's so overwhelming at the same time
0: that's a really hard thing because if you don't control your anger when you're writing it's it becomes a polemic and it didn't work Mm. and so you began by telling a story and not telling us how you felt
1: yes and it's so embarrassing when you when you phrase it like that because of course this is something that you know we teach all the time, right? Or, or if you ever get a, a friend's piece that they, that they give you to edit and, they, and you, that's the first thing you say, right? Okay, but, you know, just the facts, ma'am. But, but when it's something that you're very passionate about, it's, it's a lesson we learn over and over.
0: So how hard is it to write a story like this when you're so angry?
1: Well, I think it was easier because I had been writing it to you the whole time. Like I, I was emailing, I was sending you memos from the day that I landed. And so I felt that some of that energy had actually been channeled and I could go back to – because on, on another hand, right, like that energy is very creative. That energy is really vibrant. How so? Just the thing that hits you, I mean, again, this is something that we teach, right? It's like the thing that you would blurt out to your friend across the table is the best lead.
0: Why is that? Because we always think, but that doesn't sound like writing. It's just something I said.
1: Because it doesn't sound like writing. And, and the be, you know, most of us agree that the best writing is just it sounds like the person that you're reading. And that's what we all strive for. But there's a way in which when you're trying to recreate it, from scratch you just and again with something like this that it's there is a huge moral dilemma at the center of it right it it, it is a big moral problem that's the occasion for the story how do you present that to someone without it being an anvil and I think something about the immediacy of having written I mean most of what I wrote to you is not in this story but it was the backbone of it right it's the it's the the placenta of it, right? It fed, the st- it existed, it grew a- along with the story and it fed the story so that the story could be birthed totally separate from it. But it was the primordial goo.
0: What was the hardest thing about this story?
1: I think the hardest thing was striking a balance between what does this mean to myself personally and to Jews like me who are engaged with it and and distraught by it in a way that we very frankly are not by the occupation and and balancing that with these people's particular experiences and their stories and the very real danger that they face thanks thank you
0: This has been the Delacorte Review Podcast. Our producer is Katie Ferguson, and the theme music that you've been hearing is by Jim O'Car. The Delacorte Review appears three times a year winter, spring, and fall. Issue number one, five very different stories on the theme of home, is now available online at www.delacortereview. That's one word, and Delacorte is spelled D E L A C O R T E review.org, where we publish a new story every week. Or, if you want to read all the stories at once, it's also available as an ebook. The reviews editor is Mike Hoyt, senior editor is Sissy Falicant, associate editors are Her- Abigail Covington and Natasha Rodriguez. Our illustrations are by the wonderful Eleanor Hamelin. We'll see you next week.